This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Dr. Phil, and you are listening to Fill in the Blanks. I'm glad you're here. This is our first live broadcast, and I have a guest here today. It is Mike Bear. You guys know him probably as Coach Mike from Dr. Phil, and he is the author of the smash bestseller, Best Self, Be You Only Better. And when I say smash, this thing opened up on the New York Times bestseller list, and it has been there and stayed there and has really had an impact on uh, America and on the way people are thinking about who they are. And today, uh, I'm going to be talking to Mike, and we're going to be talking about social issues. We're going to be taking your questions, and we're going to be talking about things that I think are really germane, really pertinent to what's going on in America today. Mike, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about Best Self. You uh, wrote this book and you did it. Why? Well, I I wrote this book with your encouragement. Yeah, of course. It's got uh, a really good forward to it, by the way. (laughs) By the way, hang on. Forward by Dr. Phil McGraw. That's fine. For everyone listening, you know, and I, I, uh, for someone who didn't do well in English, uh, didn't do well in school growing up, and then having Dr. Phil, you telling me you need to write a book uh, because you have a lot to say. When I talk about feeling anxious and bringing me back to, uh oh, how am I gonna how am I gonna write this thing? And you, Dr. Phil, were extremely helpful in coaching me. I would say Dr. <laughs> Phil is my coach. You helped me out tremendously with, I mean, the amount of emails I sent you, just random sentences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah, you for they dealing were with random that. sentences, uh, <laughs> random you, thoughts and inspirations, but turned out spectacular. Yeah, and you, I'm so proud of it. And it's uh, a body of work that I know has been tremendous in helping people. Well, you should be proud of it. And I know that your editor that you worked with on it was Lisa Clark, and she was a real big help on this in helping to organize your thoughts and and my input. So kudos to her. You talk in here, I mean, let's just get this out because we're going to talk about it during our conversation here. You talk about one concept, which is best self and anti-self, and define best self for people. Best self is that part of us that is what I would call authentic. There's no fear. There is love, compassion, trust. It's when we feel like we're operating at our best. And Usually we have different moments in our life we can look back and we can go, we say to ourselves, man, I love life. Life's really working out and I'm handling things in a mature way. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of my family. You know, it's all those thoughts and feelings that really line up with operating at our best. And so what we do is we name it. You know, I always find that it's helpful to create and get inspired around who is that best version of ourself write out those characteristics and 
everyone has a different version of when they feel like they're right. being their best self. And I think it's really helpful for people to identify what that is for them. Yeah, and the reality is we all have to do things we don't want to do. I mean, in psychology, it's called the PREMAC principle. We do certain things we don't want to do to have access to the things we do want to do. That's why kids eat their vegetables before they eat their dessert. That's why they do their homework before they get to watch The Simpsons or whatever. That's pre-med. We do what we don't want to do to have access to what we do want to do. And the truth is, life's not made up of just doing everything you want to do. Right. So best self doesn't mean you just get to do everything you want to do. Right. And and I think what it's also extremely confusing in today's time around what is considered being your best self and what is considered being authentic. You know, when someone's on social media uh, and we're looking at somebody displaying pictures of themselves and talking about whatever it is they're talking about, I think it gets really confusing for anyone looking at that to feel like I don't, I don't feel that type of way. That doesn't match up with my life. And what I wanted to do was for people to realize they're really special, everyone is unique, everyone at their core it has a bright light shining inside, and to figure out how do we light it, how do we light that up for them so they have a roadmap to live what's authentic for them. What is your take on authenticity? Well, to me, I think the fear that I have for anybody that's not being authentic is that they're meant to do a certain thing. They're meant to be a certain kind of person. They're meant to use a certain skill set. They're meant to have a certain job, vocation, avocation, whatever. They're meant to have some role in this world, but they don't do that. Mm. They do something else that they've been expected to do. Maybe it's assigned by their parents or it's expected by their community, or expected by their family. And here's here's my greatest fear, is like, let's say you're an accountant or a carpenter, and you become the best accountant or carpenter that anybody has ever known or seen, and you achieve that in your life, and you get to the end of your life, and you say, wow. I became the best carpenter that anybody could ever want. But it's not what you wanted to be. You succeeded at doing something you didn't want to do. Right. Maybe you wanted to be a ballet dancer. Maybe you wanted to be a singer. Maybe you wanted to be what, but you succeeded at something you didn't value because you were expected to do it. I think, too, for a lot of people, it's how do you start creating? You know, how do you start creating inspiration? How do you start creating a new story? How do you start creating a new life? And I think a lot of people attach it, instead of just being inspired and creating to create, they'll attach it to, oh, am I going to make money out of this? What's the outcome going to be? And I think, look, for me, as as you know, on, se- on Thursday, I'll have 17 years sober. So uh, 22 years old, I was uh, addicted and extremely lost in my life and had no hope and didn't even understand why I ended up in a spot where everything was dark and I didn't, I couldn't stand myself. And 
And here I was, went to play college basketball at Fordham, captain the basketball team. And then, you know, fast forward, I'm just looking at a gaunt reflection of myself. 17 years sobriety is something to be proud of, I'll guarantee you. And that's about how long I've been on the air. Right. And that so that feels like a long time to me that you've been sober that long. So I congratulate you on that. Thank you. But right now, we have one of the biggest crises in America in the drug culture that we've ever had with this opioid crisis. And I think part of it is because of what we're talking about right now. All the people that I've talked to that get addicted to drugs, nobody ever starts taking drugs to get addicted. Right. Nobody ever starts taking taking drugs so they can get sick if they don't take them. So they have to have them. They start taking them for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's to party. Maybe it's to escape. Maybe it's for legitimate reasons to control pain after an injury or surgery. I mean, people start for a, a lot of different reasons. And I often say things frequently start for one reason and continue for another. Mm. And so they start drugs for a lot of different reasons. And I think one of the reasons that people take drugs is to escape their life. Mm to dull the pain of the mundaneness of their life or the inauthenticity of their life or the reality that they're not doing what they want to do. Because if you are living your best self, if you're doing something that you're passionate about, that lights you up every day, where, I mean, you're you're so passionate about it you don't even want to sleep. It's just like you just go to you just want to sleep fast, just zzz and jump back up. Right. Then you don't want to take drugs. You want to get back in and get high on music or art or athletics or being a mom or whatever it is that lights you up. And so you don't need to numb yourself. You don't need to get an artificial high. And I just I just know that a lot of people have told me they take drugs to dull the pain of their life and what's missing in their life. And that's because they're not living their best self, which is why I so encouraged you to write this book, because I thought it was so timely. We are at epidemic status with the opioids right now. Mm. I mean, it's it's taking over. I, I think we're at a, epidemic's a big word. I mean, if we were talking about, um, you know, a flu epidemic that was killing people or whatever, they'd be coming around like, we got to have a vaccination for this. We got to right. do something. But the opioid crisis, I, I think we're way underreacting to it. And I think a lot of it's because people are unfulfilled. I, I think you're saying the reason why people are using opiates is because they're trying to dull the pain. Whether it's it be one physical, of the emotional. No, I think that's one of the reasons. I think yeah. some people do it to party. I think some people do it because they got them, they got them from a doctor when they were post-surgical and they right. needed them, and then they just kind of it got a hold on them. I mean, there's a lot of different well, reasons. When we, after we got lunch last week. And uh, after we got lunch, we we talked about, hey, let's talk about the, what's going on in the opioid epidemic in America. And uh, what I did is I then went by, which I've never done this before. I felt like I was going undercover on one of the shows is I went by and I have it in my wallet. I, I went by a um, 
urgent care. And I was like, all right, well, let me see. Is it that hard to get pain pills? Yeah, because we were talking about it's too easy to get these things. How right. easy it is to get them, and it's too easy to get them. So you ran an experiment. I ran an experiment, and I went to a urgent care, a random urgent care, never had been there. I walked in. I was kind of nervous because I said, uh, I'm, I'm going, I don't like lying. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, but I was like, let me do, I want to see how, what this is like. And, and so I, I sat down with a, a, a doctor and I said, I have really bad back pain and I have sciatica and I'm, uh, gosh, I'm just, you know, it's, I can hardly walk. I'm not the best actor, but I, I tried just to see, is it that easy to get them? And she asked me a few other questions and then. Before you know it, she wrote me a script for Norcos. Seriously? Yeah. No x-ray. No. No MRI. Mm-mm. Did she do an examination? No, she just asked me where the pain was. And, and I, you know, and I just said, I'm in a lot of pain. It's really uncomfortable. And um... So you walk in off the street and chat her up. Chat a doctor up, and she gives you an opioid prescription. Last week, yeah. For how many? 20 Norcos. 20 Norcos. And what was the strength? How many? What What are these? Um, I can't I read the handwriting. <laughs> but but, but the, that was the only one I went in. I, I think I went on Friday, so it was just a few days ago. Right. Uh, I don't want to throw this clinic under the no, bus. No, we're not going to identify the clinic. But yeah. the point is, yeah, they're, the, these are five 325s. So five milligrams, 325. Um, so th this is full strength Right. that she gave you here. No examination, no objective findings, no. just gave it to you. Gave it to me. I said yeah. that I, I had a lot of yeah. back issues and I had had an MRI in the past and a lot of this was true, by the way, yeah. that I've had back pain and an MRI. But she even said, come back and get a refill. She gave me medication for the constipation that happens when you take opiates so that I could still go to the bathroom. Um, actually, you know, I'm not going to throw away my 17 years sober, so I'll rip this <laughs> yeah. thing up. Yeah, please. <laughs> All of a sudden I show up. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, it just goes to show how easy it is. And then if I were to go to the pharmacy with this, prescription my insurance i would have maybe a copay and then i would have you know norcos and it's it's that easy and so you say okay well you know there's plenty of people in real pain who need pain pills there's a lot of people that um have tried everything and this is really the answer the problem with opiates is it's not just you know emotionally addictive it's incredibly physically addictive and um and very difficult to get off of painful you yeah. know without the right <clears throat> detox protocols so i just thought i'd run this little experiment to see just how easy it is to score yeah and you know there are some huge there's a whole cottage industry of litigation about this right now because these all started, I guess, what, in the 90s with the Sackler family that came up with the patent on 
um, these opioids. I think it was Oxycontin at the time. And it was approved by the FDA in 96. And this was for moderate to severe pain. And it was basically, I think, designed for uh, cancer patients. But the all the materials said, you know, this is not dangerous. It's, it's not particularly addictive. And right now, there are a bundle of 1,600 opioid cases wow. that are being overseen by a federal court judge in Cleveland. And this family has been pulled into them. And there are a lot of pharmas, pharmaceutical companies have been pulled into this because they're saying that they're uh, misrepresented the risk, misrepresented the addictive nature of all of this. And so they're starting to hold accountable these pharmaceutical companies that have been pushing these. And they're looking at how they've incentivized doctors mm -hmm. to prescribe these things and uh, taking them on trips and giving them big rewards and stuff. The more they write, the more they get. And it's just been unbelievable. And some of this has gotten to the level of criminal prosecution, uh, that it's been so bad. And so as a result, we've got a country now that is just really suffering from an epidemic. You know what the five most addictive substances are in the world? Tell me. Number one is heroin. Mm. Number two is cocaine. Number three is nicotine. Number four are barbiturates, downers. Five caffeine? I'm just guessing. Number five is alcohol. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Those are the five most addictive substances in the world. Wow. And, and they're in quick supply. And we're seeing a completely different breed of addict now because so many people are getting addicted to the opioids, uh, which is a lot of it prescription, but they're so expensive that they switch to street heroin, mm. uh, which is much cheaper. But who knows what they're getting? It's not regulated. You don't know what you're getting on the street. It's just completely out there. Yeah, and... Uh, it's I not pure. It's not clean. It's definitely. Uh, what do you What do you see as are what What are some solutions? Do you think to uh, what's going on? Well, you just identified a big part of it. I mean, you walk into a urgent care, and you know these dock in the boxes are great to have, but they're on every corner. And if you can walk in there without any objective findings. Mm -hmm. And just complain of pain and somebody writes you a prescription for these opioids, my God, I, that's ridiculous because research tells us if you're still using opioids uh, at the seven-day mark, your chance of being addicted in one year is one in 12. Wow. If you're still using them at the 30-day mark, your chance of being addicted is almost one in three. Mm. So it doesn't take long messing with these things to be addicted. Right. So it's dangerous. And that's why I thought it was great that you wrote Best Self whenever you did. So talk about anti-self. 
So anti-self is that part of us that's keeping us from being our best self. So our anti-self, I like to define it, give characteristics, name it. Um, It's almost like the alter ego inside of ourselves that gets, and everyone has one. You know, if you're human, you have one. Um, Dr. Phil did it. You did it. I did. Um, Along with a lot of other people. And it's, uh, we started the challenge May 1st, which is the best self challenge, uh, which you share your best self and your anti self. And we've had very interesting uh, descriptions and photos of people's anti self. I think it's really important to know what your anti self is so that you can. Um, reduce the impact or the effect of that part of you that is ultimately going to make you really unhappy. And um, it's that part of us that is driven by all different forms of fear, uh, whether it's fear of not being good enough or rejected or not lovable or not loving or that people are going to take advantage of us, whatever it is, everyone has that part of us that uh, takes away from us being our best self. Yeah, and if you know that, you recognize your anti-self when it pops up. Right. All right, let's take a question. Uh, This is question number two uh, that came in, and it's from Lori V., and uh, she was rec- replying. And if you have a question, you can go to at Dr. Phil podcast um, and uh, tweet your question. Lori V says, you've worked with a wide variety of cases over the years. So it's no surprise that there's been an increase in the number of cases of NSSI and suicide. Why do you think that is? And how do we stop the number of incidences? Uh, of incidents. Um, you're right. I've, I have worked with a, a wide variety of cases and, you know, when you talk about people that harm themselves, um, and you talk to the people that survive this and ask them why, Uh, you get some real straightforward answers. And probably the number one answer that I get from people is they feel like they're a burden. Mm. They get to the point where they feel like they're a burden to the people that are in their lives. And those people would be better off if they were just gone. And so they think, okay, if if I can unburden them, if I can lighten their load, that's one thing I can do for them because I'm not contributing anything. So in the moment, it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll say at the same time, very few people that I've talked to that have attempted suicide, made a serious attempt at suicide and failed, very few people are sorry that it failed. Mm-hmm. Most of them say after the fact, I'm glad I didn't succeed. I'm glad I didn't kill myself. That's right. Um, because what they really wanted was not to die, but for the pain to stop. What they really wanted was to not feel like a burden, to not hurt anymore, to not be 
in such a trap anymore. And when they get the attention to their situ- situation, their circumstance that they needed, and get some more coping skills, they realize I didn't need to do that, and they're glad that they're still here, and they recognize what pain it would create for the people that they left behind. They think, I, I, I was going to do this because I felt like I was a burden. I now realize what a burden I would have left these people with in terms of guilt and pain and anger and bitterness and all of those negative feelings. If I'd killed myself, I, I would have left them with all of that emotional residue after the fact, and there would have been nothing they could do about it because I would be gone. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if you're and if you're somebody out there that's listening that is even considering this, or you think <clears throat> you know somebody that is considering it, let me tell you, it is a it is a patently bad idea, and and you really don't want to do it. And help is available. Uh, you can call the National Suicide Hotline. And by the way, when you call a hotline like that, you sometimes think, okay, I'm going to get a lot of pressure or they're going to go public or contact my family or whatever. That's not true. When you call, they don't trace your phone number. They don't come kick your door down. They listen and they talk to you. They answer your questions. They give you information. But the most important thing is that you understand you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. There are people that genuinely care. There are people that have been where you are. So if you are feeling that way, uh, reach out. You don't have the right to kill yourself. You don't have the right to burden other people with those feelings when you're gone. And there is help. You're not alone. And you need to reach out for it. And don't be afraid that they're going to put pressure on you because they're not. Yeah. Um, You know, I I just sat down with someone a few weeks ago who jumped off the 405, uh, eight stories up. And uh, everything kind of internally just popped. And for whatever reason, he tried to land on his head and he didn't. And he survived. Um, And I sat with him a few weeks. It was a year later since the incident. He said the best thing was surviving. The best thing, his whole outlook on life, he can't believe what he, you know, he couldn't believe what he was doing. And now he's using his story as an inspiration. And I think a lot of people have to realize that life's a roller coaster. You know, this moment, that darkness that happens is a moment. And the way life works is there will be opportunities or moments where you're going to get into the light. So like, like you're mentioning, calling these hotlines, talking to someone, <clears throat> telling people how you feel is, is a step on the way out because, um, as small as <clears throat> somebody's world may be, or if somebody's listening as small as your, your world may feel, um, there's a lot of people out there that, want you to live and want you to have um and are there and that it exists and it's suicide's <clears throat> a topic that i find that it becomes it's one of those i was talking to dr john churbin 
mm-hmm. who's on the advisory board for Dr. Phil. Right, from Harvard we, Medical School. Yeah, from Harvard Medical School. I was talking to him, uh, talking to everyone last week. Everything went on last week, and, and he's writing a new book on suicide. And it, we were talking about how it's one of those topics that people don't really want to talk about. Um, it's kind of so shocking that when people see somebody uh, even attempt, they kind of distant themselves and that, you know, it's a real thing and it needs to be brought to light. And, um, and he, he has a real mission of helping people who are young adults, uh, because there's been an increase of suicide amongst college students. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think just the more awareness and, and you've done such a good job of shedding light on these topics. It's, um, and this is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I, I think it would be good if my vision kind of of where I wish things would get to is where mental health is just inclusive for everybody. Like where we can just talk about these different topics and where there's not shame and there's not guilt and there's not blame, you know? Well, while we're on the topic of suicide, let me, you know, I, you know, I know it's a heavy topic, but let me say this. You know, we always say if you see something, say something, and I always add to it, do something. If you see something, say something, and then do something. Um, I want to talk about a couple of the myths of suicide. One is that people that talk about it don't do it. That's a myth. Mm. People that talk about it are at risk. They do, in fact, make suicide attempts. And so don't think that they're just attention-seeking if they say it. Don't worry about them. It's those that that don't say something you need to worry about. Uh, that's a myth, so don't think that. And if you are around somebody that has really been depressed and has really been talking about suicide, and then for no reason, they've gotten no help, nothing has been resolved, nothing has changed, but all of a sudden they're in a really good mood, you need to be concerned Mm. because it's what I call a short-termers attitude. It's like they've made up their mind to leave this world, so they found their solution, and they know they're short-term, so there's a lifting of mood because they think, they okay, I'm going to escape this suffering. So if you see a lifting of mood for no reason, now that's not, that's not, I'm not saying if they got help, if they've gotten therapy, if something resolved that was a source of pain, but if for no reason, mm. all of a sudden, they are a lot happier, you need to watch that person because they might have what I call short-termers attitude, meaning, okay, within the next 24 to 48 hours, I'm out of here, so I found relief and I feel better. A lot of people go, whew, boy, that's over. No, no. And then they get shocked when the person takes their life. They, they had been terrible, and all of a sudden, I thought everything was better. Yeah. No, it wasn't better. And they just found their ticket out. And when you say that, I think it's important to have a plan. So if you want to sit down with a friend and talk to them about uh, how depressed they are, or like you're saying, if suddenly <clears throat> their mood just changes, you want to take them to a psychiatrist, a therapist, a counselor, and get them connected with some pro- professional help to assess it. Because I find that you can talk to somebody about what's going on in their life, but if you don't create a solution, we're just talking. 
And yeah. so it's really important to have get, a plan, have a plan, yeah. have a place. And there's a lot of places, community centers that'll do it for free. You know, I get asked the question so often about, should I say something? If I do see someone that I think is suffering, like if I see somebody in a grocery store and they've lost a loved one in the last couple of weeks or something, and I see them, should I bring it up or not? Um, it's like, I don't want to, they seem to be doing okay right now. I don't want to take them back to that moment. Should I just leave them alone? Why take them back there? Or should I go up and say, hey, I'm sorry for your loss or whatever? Or if I see somebody that I think is hurting or suffering, or I think I'm concerned that they might do something to hurt themselves, should I say something or should I not? Let me answer that question for you from my point of view. And the answer is say something. Mm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. If you see somebody in the grocery store that's lost someone, yes, say something. If you think that because right now they have a smile on their face or right now they look serene, don't think for a second they've forgotten that they lost their mom 10 days ago. They haven't forgotten. And if you walk past them as though it never occurred, they're most likely to think, well, you know, it didn't make much of a difference to them. Uh, you're much better off if you step up and say, hey, I hadn't seen you since it, it happened. I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am for your loss. Mm. That means so much to people that you would take time, effort, and energy out of your day. It doesn't take them back to that moment because, trust me, they're still there. Uh, so say something. And if there's somebody that you are concerned about their depression, or you think that they're maybe suicidal, or you're picking up warning signs, don't do it in front of other people, but step to the side and say, I'm concerned that you're going to hurt yourself. I'm concerned that you're going to do something um, that it, it could really have dire consequences, e either kill yourself or hurt yourself in some way. So look me in the eye and tell me what you're thinking about. Tell me how you feel. And if they get offended, uh, 
wouldn't you rather them get offended because you're wrong mm. than wake up the next day and find out that they're dead and you didn't say something? I think it's really important to step up and say, look, if it's none of my business, then tell me. But I'm concerned that you're going to hurt yourself. I've been listening to what you're saying. I've been watching what you're doing. And I'm concerned you're going to hurt yourself. And I'm just asking you this, not in judgment, but out of concern. Right. And say, what can I do to help? And usually the person may say, I don't know. I don't know. what. <clears throat> I don't know how you can help. My life feels completely. And say, you know what? I have some help for you. I, I found a place down the street and it's a walk-in and it's free. And let's get you to sit down with a counselor and start talking about what's going on. So you have a thinking partner through this. And, uh, and most people, uh, very rarely, uh, very rarely will someone be offended. Right. Because everyone, deep down, that's what people crave, is to be seen and heard. and Yeah. At know. least hand them the number for the suicide hotline, suicide prevention hotline, or if you know what church they go to, um, there's always counseling at the church yeah. or whatever. Because let me tell you, this is something that really, really bothers me <clears throat> about what's going on in our society. People tell you how they feel and what they're going to do if you'll just pay attention. Um, I don't know how many school shootings we've had, um, even this year, but I guarantee it's double digits. Mm. Uh, we, there have been so many that it takes really big loss of life for it to really make headlines anymore. Um, but even in situations where there are mass shootings, did you know that in almost 80% of school shootings, at least one person had information that the attacker was thinking about or planning that school attack before they did it. And in 67% of the cases, more than one person had information about it and nobody did anything. Now, hear what I just said. Right. In 80% of the cases... Somebody knew what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, where it was going to happen, and who was going to do and it. And why do you think they didn't say anything? And in two-thirds of the cases, more than one person knew it, and nobody did anything. It's what we call leakage, where the person either intentionally or unconsciously puts out signals. They either tell somebody, right, or they maybe it's like, hey, don't go to school tomorrow, or they mm. put up a manifesto somewhere or right. whatever, and they don't react because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't want to be a busybody. They don't want to get involved in some way. But think about if it with all of the school shootings, all the way back to Columbine, which is probably the first one that made big news. Mm. People knew about Columbine before it happened. Students knew about Columbine before it happened. And in 80% of the cases, 
at least one person. And what if that one person had said something and gone to the authorities, gone to the school, gone to the parents, gone to somebody and insisted that action be taken? Um, how many lives could have been saved? Right. And if you're one of those people right now, ask yourself, has somebody given you a clue? You, you need to hear it. Yeah, and a clue of what they're going to do to somebody else or how they're going to... Even even <clears throat> it's one of those things of how they're going to seek revenge. You know, I think sometimes... It's always it's the old saying, how would you want to uh, treat others the way you want to be treated? When people give you information... Uh, that's going to hurt other people. Uh, I mean, I, you, anyone who knows me is don't tell me because <laughs> I yeah. just tell everyone. Yeah. I don't want to hold on to that, <clears throat> you know. But but I think it's hard for some people to keep um, to just to just uh, tell on the situation. But uh, yeah, I agree with you, you know. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bothersome to me that we're not paying enough attention to the people around us. And it's bothersome to me that we're not communicating anymore. People ask me all the time if I think the Internet is a good thing or a bad thing, mm -hmm. the World Wide Web. And here's a little known fact about nothing. Did you know that you can say World Wide Web faster than you can say WWW? <laughs> <laughs> World Wide Web, WWW. Yeah. Okay. So when you're saying that to somebody, you can say World Wide Web faster than you can say WWW. <laughs> it's just a tongue twister. But um, obviously there are good and bad things about it, but uh, it's causing us to erode our interpersonal skills. I love the fact that we have it, obviously, because you can get on a search engine and find anything in a matter of seconds, right? Right. But we're communicating by text and email and Instagram, direct messaging, all sorts of things. Instead of looking people in the eye and communicating straight up. And so it's causing us to not use our interpersonal skills as much as we used to. What do you think? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on well, it. Well, spit them out. Well, Don't text me. Tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, for one is, you know, I remember the days where uh, somebody would go on a family vacation or they would go to some really, uh, you know, they'd go to Hawaii and they'd say, come on over. I want to show you photos from the trip. And they would flip you through the photo album and you got to see all these different places they went. And this is when we went to the restaurant. And... um and I like that someone would invite me. Now I, I have to see everyone's vacations, even the people I don't really care to see their vacations. And now I'm going to see the best angles, the best photos, the best time, the best relationships. <clears throat> I also, you know, I'm one of those that I don't go on the Internet and talk poorly or bad about others. I, and I never I still have a hard time understanding uh, why people go on the Internet and argue whether it be politics, whether it be uh, someone they don't like, uh, it almost feels like this free for all uh, on the internet. And I, I think it's, um, I think a lot of people that would be good for social media aren't on social media. I think, you know, if you're if you're a business today, you have to be on social media. But I, I've noticed there's been a lot of adults 
you know, they always talk about the cyberbullying in schools or what have you, but I see a lot of adults on the internet bad-mouthing other people, making fun of other people, bullying other people. And I think a lot of those people actually somehow have justified that it's okay. Like I have people in my neighborhood, really nice people, walk down the street with my dog. They say, hey, Mike, how's it going? And, you know, really genuinely. And then I'll, if I'll follow them on Facebook and the way they'll talk about different topics, you know, thank goodness there's an unfollow button now. And I mute half the people I follow on Instagram because I just, I don't want to unfollow them to upset them, but I don't really want to see people posting angry things. I I just, I I kind of been dumping out all my opinions of the negative of the internet, but, but I, 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 look, we also are doing a live podcast on YouTube and, uh, we're, yeah, we couldn't do this. We couldn't do this otherwise. And on the World Wide web, on the World Wide web (laughs) and also on Twitter, you get news right away. Instead of having to wait for the news to come on, so if there, if you're needing to stay safe, if there's a crisis going on, Twitter's incredible. Um, but I, I, uh, I go so back and forth with. Uh, but you know the problem is there is a big problem with cyberbullying though. I mean that is a huge deal. Huge. And, and you're right. The problem is, and I call them keyboard bullies. Right. Because people will write things, they will type things out on their keyboard to or about somebody that they would never say to you if they were in an elevator with you. Right. I mean, these people will get on and they'll say somebody that they don't really know. Maybe it's a celebrity or somebody and they'll say, you suck. You know, you that's horrible. That's ugly. You're ugly. You suck. Do you think they would get on an elevator and look at that person and say, oh, by the way, you suck. (laughs) They would never do that. Right. But the anonymity of a keyboard allows them to do that. And the problem is a lot of people take that to heart. They do. And particularly young people, but not just young people. There are adult cyber bullies as well. There's a lot of adult cyber bullies. You know, one of the things I do before... Uh, so I have 20 employees at cast centers, treatment center. Um, and I look at before I hire anyone, I go through all their social media accounts because if there's someone who's talking poorly about others, if it's someone who's bullying other people, you can tell so much about a person by just checking out their social media. I mean, I kind of gave away for anyone that's interviewing for a job for me. Now they're quickly, you know, I had this meeting with my staff. Everyone started deleting half their stuff <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's so natural today. And, you know, I'll go on a, a Dr. Phil, you know, I'll go on your show and I'll have put a lot of effort in and thinking creativity and like, I really want to help this person. How do I maximize it? And I'll find that like, and I don't view those comments anymore, but I'll find that like people who follow Dr. Phil <clears throat> will be like, who's this coach Mike guy and what is he doing? And he has a lisp. And what is he saying? And you're just bashing me. And I don't know these people. And I'm like, I'm, I'm actually trying. I feel like I should get like a pass because I'm trying to help people. But I'm like, no, you don't get a pass. We're going to tell you everything that's wrong with you. And I can handle it. But I just. Apparently not. I can. I'm okay. You know, the good thing is because I've been cyber bullied online. I love it. I'm one of those. I love it because when I go into schools, I get it. If you're not, if you, if you don't go through that experience of going, 
Why are people being mean to me who I don't know? You, it's hard to relate to people in schools who are going, why are these kids being mean to me? They don't know me. And I think, I wish there was anonymity, like no anonymity online, you know, with the trolls. I I just think um, <clears throat> something, I feel like something's going to happen or shift or change because it's just, it's, it's uh, the integrity of it all just doesn't line up with everyday life. No, it doesn't. And what you have to realize, and I, I try to tell kids all the time, if you're in that situation, just unplug. But they say, why should I have to unplug? Why should I have to not be part of this cyber community? Because this person, why didn't a bully unplug? Well, you know, life's not fair. It just is what it is. But, um, and sometimes it doesn't even take bullying for some of these kids because I've had them tell me that they'll put up a picture and it gets 120 likes. They'll put up the next picture and it only gets six and they really get down. They really get down on themselves. They feel rejected because this one got 120 likes and this one got six. And so they think, oh my God, nobody likes me anymore. I've been rejected. And you don't know who these people are. Well, if you, if you think about it, Twitter, it's followers. So you're basically f- following, which we're trying to teach people to be leaders, but you're followers. And then on Instagram and Facebook, it's likes. Do Does this photo warrant me to like it? Is it good enough? Is that a good enough thing you're posting? And so off the bat, somebody on the receiving end is like, their, their value and their self-esteem has to do with other people saying you're great. And unfortunately that's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering, which we've seen. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know how this changes, but you can put up an important piece of legislation and it gets 14 likes. You can put up a a little video of a kitten falling asleep and falling over. They can get a million likes. I went to the, I went to Kurdistan, Iraq two years ago alone alone to open up mental health clinics i met with the government Uh, here it's 20 hours away it takes forever they had to like sneak me through you know it's yeah you're you're not easy to hide i'm not easy to hide and i'm posting me with the kids and i'm thinking you know you know this is this is good you know I'm, i'm i'm trying to help these women whose husbands have been beheaded daughters used as sex slaves moved over to syria and I'm out there and I'll post photos and, you know, I'll, I, I, to be honest, I was like, you know, I was like, okay, this is, this is a pretty big deal that I'm doing this. And, you know, yeah, I may get 50 likes or something, but then I post a photo with my dog eating an acai, acai bowl and suddenly I got a thousand likes and everyone's like, this is amazing. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I, I think it's, and this is why being your best self is so important. Back to the book is what I've come to realize is if you're operating from being your best self, then you're le- you're less concerned about whether or not people are going to like you or not, because you're just liking yourself and you're just digging yourself. Yeah, and you know I, what? I, the reason I kind of drifted into talking about that is because I think parents, I I think parents need to do two things. One is. I think they need to really sit down and talk to their kids 
about having the need to be loved by strangers. Mm. I think they need to sit down and talk to them and say, look, if you're going to be on the internet, we need to have a conversation about how you're measuring self-worth. And if it really matters to you, if if it affects your self-esteem, your self-worth, and your self-image, that somebody you don't know says something you don't like, then we need to have a real serious conversation here until that's no longer the case. And I think parents certainly sometimes aren't nearly as tech savvy as their kids. Right. Because parents have the wisdom, I think, to navigate, but the kids have the knowledge. They have the ability to zip around the, the internet, but they don't have the wisdom. So, so, so let me, to that point, mom and dad sit, let's say they sit down with their daughter and she's what age do you think is like the starting age? 12, 13, 14. 12, 13, 14. As soon as they're about to <clears throat> be able to have access to. Well, yeah, once they become socially conscious, and maybe it's before that now, I, you, you never know. Some kids are more precocious than others, but once they start paying attention to fashion and boys discover girls, girls discover boys, once they start getting into social sensitivity, mm-hmm. that's where I think parents need to sit down and realize that the cyber world is part of what they need to talk to their kids about. There used to be these commercials that would come on TV and say, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Come on every night, right before the news, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your children are? Now, it's 10 p.m. all the time because of the internet. You have to know where your kids are all the time. And because they're exposed to potential abuse, potential grooming, potential predators, I think... Parents need to have cyber conversations with their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of strange if you think about it, why a, uh, a teenager on social media posting photos of themselves. It's such a strange... Yeah, and, the, and of course, the ones that get the most likes are often provocative. The most revealing. Yeah, or they're funny or something. There are a lot of different things to get it, but... Um, you know, there are a lot of predators out there, but aside from that, they need to talk to their kids about how sensitive they are to what somebody is saying to them that could be con- that could constitute bullying mm-hmm. or how sensitive they are to whether somebody is liking or rejecting the content they put up on the internet because it's kind of a popularity contest. So if they feel less popular than the next person or someone else in school or someone else in their group that they know. And they look, the number one need among all people is acceptance. Mm. And, and there are a lot of synonyms or versions of that, but one of them is belongingness. You want to feel like you belong, that you're accepted, that you're wanted. And the number one fear is rejection. Right. And a lot of people would fill that in and say failure uh, but that's just another way of saying rejection. And and parents need to realize that the cyber world is a, is a place where that is amplified immediately. It's not where it just kind of builds up across the school year. It's amplified immediately. They put something up, 
and the internet votes on it right. and gives them feedback right then. And I don't think that we're spending enough time inoculating our children to the power of that immediate and profound feedback that they're getting. And we need to talk to them about, look, this is not real world. These mm-hmm. people don't really know you. This is not valid in that they're not making a vote with full information and data about who you are. They're voting on a picture. They're voting on something you said. They don't know who you are, what your values are, what your philosophies are, what you care about, what your history is. Uh, they, They don't know anything about you, and yet they're saying mean things to you or whatever. So you need to understand that this is uninformed and you cannot take this to heart. And if you do, we need to talk about why you're vulnerable to that. Right. And I I think parents need to do that more. And I think if they would set that time, and I don't care if kids roll their eyes when you're doing Mm -hmm. it, that doesn't mean they're not hearing you. Just because they roll their eyes doesn't mean it shuts off their ears. And I and I think it's mom and dad also saying what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Yeah. Oh, and then, oh, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I said there were two things I wanted to say to parents. And the other is parents ask me a lot: should they monitor where their kids are going on the internet, uh, or do they think that that's an invasion of their privacy? And I would say. Yes and yes. Yes, you should monitor them. And yes, it's an invasion of their privacy. But as a parent, it's your job to know where they are. It's your job to know who they're talking to. It's your job because there might be a predator that's grooming them. You'll recognize that. They won't. So it's your job to know where they're going. Invade their privacy. It's your job. I'm sorry if that offends parents uh, or kids. Uh, I'm not saying you need to go read their personal diary. I'm not saying or go you need in the to... bathroom when they go to the bathroom. No, <laughs> that's not purely... what I'm saying. But <laughs> you need to know where they're going on the internet and who's talking to them. Yeah, become uh, very informed. Let's take another question. This is from Michelle. Um, she says, "For my 15-year-old daughter, diagnosed depression, anxiety, suicidal." Th- thoughts and self-harm doesn't want to be hospitalized wants help not offered in montreal listens to dr phil and loves coach bear any help or suggestions please um what would you say that she's saying she's got a 15 year old daughter that has been diagnosed i assume that's by professionals and suicidal thoughts and self-harm so she says thoughts about suicide, self-harm, mm-hmm. meaning has probably already happened, does not want to be hospitalized, but wants help, but it's not offered in Montreal. Well, I th- I think for Michelle, the first thing is it's not about it, it, somebody operating in the state of having suicidal thoughts and self-harm at 15 years old shouldn't be making decisions on her own well-being. So if, if it means her getting hospitalized in Montreal... Mm-hmm then she should be hospitalized in Montreal. I think it's a, it's not about what she wants at this stage. It, it's you as a mom saying this is what needs to happen at this stage, and um, that's what I would suggest. Exactly. Um, 
you say it nicer than I do, um, which is... <laughs> I thought I was being bullish and maybe not. <laughs> no, I, no, but you're, I, I concur uh, completely. And it, it's not really about, about being harsh, but when, when somebody... You're, you're, in a, you're in a state where objectivity has slipped away, right? right. Because depression and anxiety uh, means that emotionally... They're, they've lost the orientation somewhat. Um, and then when you say suicidal thoughts, they've lost orientation significantly. Right. If suicide looks to be a viable option to them, they've lost objectivity. If they're harming themselves, then now it's gone from thought to behavior. And at that point, it's your job to protect your child from themselves. Right. And... It's not about what the child wants. It's about what the child needs to protect themselves. And so um, I, I realize she doesn't want to be hospitalized. I don't know anyone that does. Yeah, uh, no one wants to be hospitalized. But I think it's important to get the child to the point that she's not a danger to herself and then try to arrange some kind of outpatient protocol where she can enjoy being outside the hospital, but is not a danger to herself. But it's not about what she wants. It's about what she needs. And, and I often find that for uh, parents, <clears throat> the leverage that you have is the consequence if they don't follow through and she doesn't, as Dr. Phil mentioned, go to outpatient, participate, um, really show up for it, then the consequence is, well, that is what's going to happen if you don't follow through. And for your daughter to realize that this is real, that you really are going to follow through and that she's in control of her own actions of where she ends up. Yeah. Here's the next question. This one's number seven from Amanda H. She says, what do you do if you have a friend or loved one who struggles with mental health issues and doesn't seem ready or willing to get help? Um. I'll answer this one first, and then you can add to it if, you, right. if you have something to add. Um, you know, I, I, I do think there are four stages of readiness, and I think you have to be at the fourth stage where you're sick and tired of where you are before you're going to be really motivated for change. And... Um, but I will give you a, a tip that I have found very, very useful. And it'll sound like semantics, but it's not. Um, I always try and approach people by telling them what I think they deserve rather than what I think they need. Mm. Because when you tell somebody, listen, you need to see somebody, you need therapy, you need help. Um, it's hard for them to not hear that in a critical way. Like you're being critical. You're saying I'm deficient. You're saying I'm out of control. I need something, which means I'm deficient in some way. But if instead you say, listen, I've been around you a lot, and you, you it seems to me that you're in pain in some way, and I just think you deserve 
to have some peace. I think you deserve to have a better quality of life. I think you deserve to have some help with this. And I want you to care enough about yourself to do that. And so I have a plan. I have a suggestion for you because as Coach Mike said earlier, um, it's really important if you're going to step in and say something, have a plan. Like if you're going to talk to a drug addict and you get them to recognize they have a problem, you better have a plan for them to have something to do or now you're just in agreement that they have a problem. Have a plan. So step up and talk to them about what they deserve instead of what they need and have a plan and offer to go with them the first time. Um, and They may want you to go with them and sit in the lobby and and not be in the room with them, or they may even want you to go in for the first 10 minutes. Um, but then excuse yourself so they can be candid and talk about things that are bothering them. Hell, it may be you yeah. uh, that's bothering them, so they can't talk about it with you there. So, But again, do say something. But I, I like to tell them what they deserve instead of what they need. And And – one more point on that is I, I always like to figure out when is if you have a friend, look at who has the most impact on that friend in your life. Is it a mom? Is it a grandparent? Is it um, someone that, you know, they really respect? And sometimes it's getting that person to connect with that person that's struggling. You may not be the best person sometimes. And it's figuring out who really is that best person. So that would be one more thing I would add to it. Yeah, I think that's right. And sometimes it helps if you have there, – there's strength in numbers. Um, there is. There, there's strength in numbers. Um, if, if, you, if you have that best friend, you have somebody that you know, they really care about or they really respect – Maybe the two of you talk before you go. So, and again, do this privately. Nobody confesses in a crowd. Nobody confesses in a crowd, even if it's confessing that they're depressed or your eyes just did a crazy thing, or they need help. <laughs> but, I don't think I've ever seen your eyes. Well, nobody. Well, I'm just. That's a truth. I'm telling right. you, nobody confesses in a crowd. So it's really important to take it private and keep it private. Now, I have to get your opinion about this, Coach Mike. You need my opinion? I need you. I'm, I'm asking everybody I find. Uh-huh. Uh, but I do value your opinion on this. I've, I've been around a long time, and I have never seen our country so divided and... I'm talking about the fact that you know we've got conservatives and liberals, we've got Democrats, we've got Republicans. We've always had that. But and this is a country that's had a civil war. So I don't put it that this is the worst that it's ever been in America because we had a civil war where right. we were shooting each other. Right. So I don't put it at that level. We also had level. slavery. We've had, right. and we've had horrible yeah, but we are at a point where it's like now 
if there's disagreement politically, there's no dialogue. It's like if you're on the other side of an issue, it's like you don't exist or you go on the list. Um, How do we start this dialogue back? How do we get people, even though core values, they may disagree on core values that seem there's just no compromise that can be envisioned, how do we get people talking civilly again about things that seem to be so fundamentally different? I think we create a lot of people that uh, don't behave like that. Like, I'll be friends with a Republican, a Democrat, independent. Like, it, to me, that's just a choice of what somebody uh, chooses politically. Uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, I think more people need to express that they're not divided. I think more people in the media or who are in the public eye, like, I mean this respectfully, like, just act like I don't care about your polit your political views. I think a lot of people are like empowered to give a point of view today that's irrelevant. I that's how I see it. I I don't I, I, I think it's sad to see people in so much conflict and fighting. <clears throat> but I also think a lot of those people who are in so much conflict and flight and fighting this is my opinion, need to go see a therapist and work on their emotional issues because they're not really changing the world or changing anything. I I don't see the benefit. It doesn't help anyone. And uh, I know some of the listeners probably are even the ones out there fighting. You have to really take a look and go, are you making things better? You know? Well, I I agree. The the only thing I'm wishing and I just don't think you're ever going to resolve an issue if you're not having any dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to talk about things if you're ever going to come up with a solution or ever persuade the other side. Right. Um, if Even if you think, look, there's no way I can just go have lunch and just pretend that this other side is not, in my opinion, creating crimes against humanity. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that we have to do that, but I'm saying be persuasive. I mean, you can't persuade somebody if you're not talking to them. You've you've got to come, and sometimes you have to do it a step at a time and move the needle in the direction that you want because. <clears throat> If you're not having a dialogue, I don't see how you can persuade the other side to your point of view. But I don't, to to me, I mean, wouldn't someone rather persuade people? I mean, look, you've you've told me before that when somebody has their mind made up and they have a certain belief or opinion, that the odds of you changing their opinion by showing something else that even could be true that it's still incredibly difficult to change somebody's opinion, right? Well, it is because of confirmation bias. 
Uh, once somebody really s- buys into a position, they tend to filter out any data to the contrary. And when you force feed them data to the contrary, it tends to deepen their belief, not shake their belief. Right. Uh, but most people are smart enough to realize that if they're willing to really sit down and consider the fact that they might be affected by confirmation bias, but they can't change what they don't acknowledge. So they have to acknowledge, hey, wait a minute, I may have my filter up so much right. that I'm I'm seeing a, a slanted view of the world and appeal to their greed. It's just, look, I'm just going to try to show you the fastest way to get what you want. I'm not trying to change you to not want what you want. I'm just trying to show you the fastest way to get what you want. I, I just want people to talk more. Well, I, I, you know, and this may or may not be on this topic, but I've noticed online a lot of people will, let's say there's something in the news and they'll just destroy somebody. And let's say it comes out a week later that that news story was false, wasn't true. I don't see anybody online going, hey, let me correct something I posted a week ago. Let me tell you where I was wrong. Let me tell you how I didn't have the facts right. And let me tell you, I made a mistake here. I never see that or rarely see that. You know, like, I guess in, you know, in journalism, I remember back in the newspaper, they would go, we actually made an error about the location and the time in this city. But now it seems like things are just kind of on to the next one. Yeah. You know. Well, that's my two cents worth. (laughs) I don't know. I just think people should talk more. All right. You have to. Not argue more. You you have to answer some fill in the blanks. Fine. All right. Answer this question. Uh Uh-huh. I regret the time I blank because it made someone I care about cry. Oh, gosh. Now you're bringing in family issues. Um, I would say I regret uh, one year with my family. Uh, I could have taken the high road and not engaged in the debate that was going on in the family. And I entered the debate and made it a bigger fire. And I regret uh, stepping into that because it took us another year to kind of reconvene. And You blew it up for a year? I mean, it was bad. Okay. I mean, it was already going to be blown up, but I kind of... Uh, okay. I don't like... That's All the, right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Here's the like, share something with me. You would do that. <laughs> I want to let you go on. Okay. If I could leave right now and go do blank, I would because I've always wanted to, but I've never told anyone. Something I've never done? Would you like me to read it again? Yes, please. Would you reread it? If I could leave right now and Uh, go do blank, I would because I've always wanted to, but never told anyone. Skydive. Really? You would do that? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, not me. I'm not jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. Yeah, I would try it. Okay. When's your birthday? I wouldn't bungee jump because that thing just looks like it's... I really would have to go to the doctor if I did that. Yeah, well, you and I are big enough that I'm going to check those cords because they <laughs> they might be set up for the normal size person. Right. And they don't take us into account. All right, number three. I've always wished I could blank, but life just got in the way. Um, 
Oh my god! These questions. How long did you take to the, what? The, these questions are like holy moly! I never thought of these. I think a lot. Um, if I could say it again, Phil. I'm sorry. I always wished I could blank, but life just got in the way. I always wish I could speak another language. All right. If I could snap my fingers and have blank sitting in front of me, I would. Could be a person or a thing. <clears throat> Probably my dog, Vita. She'd be hanging out with us. I have never told anyone that I blank because I know no one would believe me. Um, I never told anyone. That I blank because no one would believe me. What's your hidden talent? What do you do that no one would believe? I mean, I won a Magic the Gathering tournament, which is like Dungeons and Dragons, and it's extremely nerdy, and I won it two weeks ago on a Sunday, and I walked out, that would probably be it. Don't believe I'd have told that. Okay. <laughs> this is the last one. Thank God. The nicest thing I have ever done was blank, and this is the first time I've ever talked about it. Um, the nicest thing I've ever blanked, and this is the first time that I've spoken about it. Um, we are live. Tick, yeah, talk, I'm sorry. Tick, I mean, talk, I'm tick, sorry. Talk. You know what? It's the nicest thing I've ever done that I don't talk about is every single time on Facebook when I see a donation thing pop up, even if I don't know the people and their birthday cause or anything, I always donate like 50 to 100 bucks. Okay. And I do good. it anonymously. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's why I never tell anyone. Okay, well, no longer anonymous. Yeah, now, I know. Now I'm like, now all of a sudden everyone's going to be sending me these birthday <laughs> yeah. donation things. All right. Mike, thanks for doing this. This Thank is our first live podcast. We talked about best self. And look, shameless plug. Obviously, Mike's my friend. Obviously, I asked him to write the book. I've wrote the forward for it. So I don't pretend to be objective about it. But this is really a good book. It's Best Self, Be You Only Better. It's written by uh, life coach Mike Bear. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on, on Barnes & Noble. You can get it in Walmart. You can get it anywhere books are sold. You can find this. It's red. It's got Best Self on the front. It's got a picture of Mike on the back looking very suave With and Jennifer cool. Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. Digging it. Yeah. Jennifer Lopez uh, endorsed it. I wrote the foreword. So it really is a good book. I highly recommend it. Mike, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, we're signing off. Thanks for listening. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.